Stay tuned for The Turning Point with Mike Fader. got here and I just got here late, which I hate to do. It throws me off completely. I have all these incredibly obsessive rituals and um, other, um, other things I do to get ready for the show. And um, you want to hear some complaints? Stay tuned for some complaints. And not only that, I just got uh, new glasses, which aren't working right. So I, uh, I'm, I'm reading something. Uh, I might read an article here. Um, I can't really quite see what I'm doing. <laughs> How long can this go on? I don't know. I don't know. <sighs> All right. <clears throat> uh, some of you may have noticed that um, there was an article the other day. In fact, it was on Memorial Day. 
Um, mm -hmm. While I do this, I'm going to have a little throat coat tea. See if that uh, does anything to my throat. Usually does. Pour some uh, in the cup. Put some on the table because it doesn't work right. So, yeah, there was this, uh, I mean, where were you on Memorial? Did you go on vacation? I mean, uh, but this article appeared. Ah, that's helpful. This article appeared in the, uh, in the paper. It was front page article. And um, uh, basically what they're saying is, uh, the headline is, Arlington Cemetery nearly full may become more exclusive. To preserve space for future war heroes in the country's premier national cemetery, the Army is considering new rules that would uh, turn away many currently eligible veterans. Um, Arlington. Uh, the, sol the solemn ritual of a burial with military honors is repeated dozens of times a day in foul weather or fair at Arlington National Cemetery, honoring service members from privates to presidents. <clears throat> it's very unprofessional. But in order to preserve the tradition of burial at the nation's foremost military cemetery for future generations, the Army, which runs Arlington, says today that it may have to deny to nearly all veterans uh, space in the cemetery. <clears throat> Arlington is running out of room. <clears throat> Already the final resting place for more than uh, more than 420,000 veterans and their relatives. The cemetery has been adding about 7,000 more each year. At that rate, even if the last rinds, R-I-N-D-S, of open ground around its edges are put to use, the cemetery will be completely full in about 25 years. <clears throat> the Army wants to keep Arlington going for at least another 150 years, but with no room to grow... The grounds are hemmed in by highways and development, of course. <clears throat> the only way to do so is to significantly tighten the rules for who can be buried there. In other words, uh, Arlington is looking only now for a few good men and women, not for everybody who uh, originally was able to be buried there. That has prompted a difficult debate over what Arlington means to the nation and how to balance egalitarian ideals against the site's physical limits. It's a problem with everybody, right? I have that problem. How do I balance my egalitarian ideas with my physical limits? Not well. The strictest proposal <clears throat> the Army is considering would allow burials only for service members killed in action or awarded the military's highest decoration for heroism, the Medal of Honor. That's the strictest. <clears throat> Under those restrictions, Arlington would probably conduct fewer burial burials in a year than it does now in a single week. A policy like that would exclude thousands of currently eligible combat veterans and career officers who risk their lives in the service and who plan to be buried in Arlington among their fallen comrades. And um, I'll skip over some of this. Um, Arlington is not the only place for military burials, of course. There are 135 national cemeteries maintained by the Department of Veterans Affairs across the country. <coughs> But Arlington is by far the most prominent, and curtailing burial there would mean changing the site from an active cemetery into something closer to a museum. And what the Army is doing uh, is conducting a survey of public opinion. I'm not really sure how they do that. I mean, maybe if you went 
to this the Army site, however that whatever that is, um, or Arlington National Cemetery site. Maybe if you go there online, they can uh, you can uh, be part of this public opinion uh, survey, and they're they're um, they're going to have recommendations in the fall after people uh, respond during the summer. Uh, what does the nation want us to do? Arlington's executive director, uh, Kevin Durham Aguilera, said in an interview, if the nation has the will to say we want to keep Arlington special and available, we have to make a change. At current burial rates, Arlington will be completely full in about 25 years. The Army, which manages the cemetery, wants to preserve space by tightening the rules who might be for people who might be buried there. <clears throat> and this is interesting. In a fitting turn of history, the cemetery now faced with a threat of overcrowding was created to address overcrowding. Early in the Civil War, the heavy death toll in battles near the Capitol soon filled wa- uh, Washington's existing cemeteries. Desperate for more burial space, the quartermaster general of the Army turned to a rolling green plantation just across the Potomac, the home of General Robert E. Lee. Man, fate itself, right? Whose decision to fight on the Confederate side marked him as a traitor in many Union eyes. At first, Arlington was anything but a coveted resting place. Most early burials were of ordinary soldiers whose families could not afford to have their remains shipped home. So basically, you just had the tombstones. But as revered Union officers, right, rank as its privileges, later chose to be buried in Arlington among the troops, egalitarian, the cemetery rose in prestige. The Tomb of the Unknowns was erected after World War I, and on nearly every Memorial Day then, the sitting president, in this case we know who that is, has laid a wreath there. Uh, Most early burials at Arlington were of ordinary soldiers whose families could not afford to have their remains shipped home, of course, as it said before. The modern concept of Arlington, an egalitarian Elysian field where generals and GIs of every creed and color are buried side by side, did not truly emerge until the cemetery, ready for this, of course, was desegregated after World War II. So if you were a black soldier and uh, you qualified to be buried in Arlington Cemetery, you couldn't because you were black. America itself. Um, um, Arlington has tried to stretch what room it has. It has ended the old practice of burying family members side by side and now stacks them two or three deep in a single plot. In in, In sections that hold only cremated remains, the rows are now uh, spaced closer together. But planners say these measures can only do so much. Anyhow, <clears throat> um, so Arlington is filling up because of overcrowding. Uh, the dead keep marching in, so to speak, and um, the, um, the live people um, become more and more all the time, and there's more wars all the time. And we're in a permanent war. We're sort of in a permanent... We've always been in a permanent war, if you read the history books. But since Vietnam, uh, our last big war, um, there was a lull. Then back in the the 80s and 90s, it started up again in various countries, covert. And then after 2001, we've been at war now um, in all over the world in one way or another. 
for 17 years, 17 years, the United States has been at war. <clears throat> so Arlington's filling up. But it's not just, uh, you know, really it's not just uh, Arlington, um, uh, except for places where there is uh, wide open available space, like some rural areas and probably out west. Most cemeteries in the country uh, have a crowding problem. Uh, maybe you know this from uh, personal experience, not because you were buried in one, because you might still not be able to listen in that case, but because you have um, a relative in one of these cemeteries or have visited these cemeteries over the years or decades, and you can see. Um, and, you know, when you think about it, I mean, how many people have died and were buried in this country in the last 300 years? Hundreds of millions, hundreds of millions and 90 to 95% of them, I'm guessing, have been buried, not cremated. And even if they were cremated, uh, there was a plot, you know, where the urn was buried. And it's not put in a, a niche in a wall. <clears throat> I, I was actually too lazy to check with Wikipedia, so I'm not sure how the older inhabitants, the Indians, dispose of their dead. Though I do know that some tribes in the Northeast expose the bodies to the elements, sometimes on raised platforms. I know that. Um, from reading history and from various other things. Uh, now, you know, when you think about it, that seems more natural, just exposing bodies to wind and sun and rain, insects, animals, rather than buying expensive coffins and purchasing eternal personal leases. And I think the phrase used in the cemetery biz is perpetual care. I love that phrase, perpetual care. I would like to have perpetual care now before I die. My wife would say I am getting perpetual care, but there's never enough for me because I'm greedy. Originally, um, people were born into the open air. I mean, humans were born into the open air. That's the way it was originally. I mean, it seems maybe in caves, but it seems right to let them die in the same way. I mean, uh, the world is way overcrowded, uh, and you just can't leave bodies lying around to decompose in their natural state. It just really wouldn't work out very well, right? Too many place, too many people who were living, and not enough space, and too many people, and uh, it's a health problem. <clears throat> the oldest, the oldest events, I guess, in in human life that occasion a ritual are birth and death, right? The entry and the exit to this temporary plane of existence. Just, you know, that's that's the way it was, and that's the way it always will be. Uh, and now we live on a planet where there are too many births. There's too many people. Overpopulation. Tens of millions of new people are born every year. Maybe it's hundreds of millions. Probably hundreds of millions of new people are born every year. More, of course, than die off in that same course of time, despite all uh, human beings' efforts to uh, murder themselves and each other. Um, you know, still more people are being born than are dying. And <clears throat> so we have a real and... Ultimately, I guess, planet-ending crowding problem. What go, and what can be done about it? Who knows? Maybe God has a plan. It would be nice to think so, because if he or she doesn't have a plan, obviously nobody else does. Or if they do, uh, there's not much that uh, poor humans can do about it. Um, <clears throat> you know, climate change. and I mean, making the world, you read these articles all the time and you hear about this all the time. People are living to be older in a lot of places. Now, there are places in the world, permanent war zones, drought, starvation, plague, disease, where people are dying um, by the tens of thousands, um, you know, every week. 
every month. They're dying from wars and starvation and plague. But the but a lot of the places in the world are working to make life um, more healthy and extend life medically, even environmentally in some places. But where are all these people supposed to get their food and water from? And where is the room to put them when they die? Uh, unless, of course, everybody finally has to agree to be cremated. Uh, but I don't know. That doesn't seem to be happening. It doesn't seem to be happening. I mean, projecting into the future, what will probably happen is that through some combination of natural and unnatural disasters, the human race will be considerably thinned. And then it will be more or less uh, having to start from the beginning all over again. I mean, that's what people project, right? But uh, <clears throat> when, it comes back, when it comes back to uh, burial grounds, archaeologists, of course, are always digging up ancient remains that go back tens of thousands of years. There are cemeteries in this country, and I've been to some of them in New England, that obviously go back hundreds of years. Um, my wife's father <clears throat> is buried in a small... I guess you would call it semi-rural cemetery up in Maine. Um, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful, not too big, few acres of land. And it's bordered by fields on one side and woods and a bay on the other. There's a lot of this on coastal Maine. So the cemetery <clears throat> lies right in between these beautiful cultivated um, green lawns and fields that run up to woods on one side, big, tall trees of various kinds, and some of them very old, and uh, the, um, the bay, the ocean on the other side. And it's a beautiful place when you think about it. I mean, where would you like to be, you know? This cemetery has been there for at least 150 years, I think. Maybe, maybe longer. I don't really know. Uh, I don't remember if there are graves in this cemetery uh, for men who died fighting in the Civil War. I don't recall that. There may be some. <clears throat> um, Maybe uh, the cemetery um, wasn't there during the Civil War, um, but uh, uh, you know, if veterans of the Civil War died and were, they may have been buried in there. And I don't remember seeing the tombstones, but I haven't seen all of them. Um, but uh, there are some in the cemetery. There are some very old, faded and discolored, sort of leaning over tombstones with the title "Captain" on them. And because of where this is located, and because there's so much. I mean, for hundreds of years, people have fished off these coasts and uh, gone whaling. So I'm sure that these captains uh, were captains of whaling ships or fishing boats or large fishing boats. And <clears throat> this cemetery, as I said, is really, <sighs> it's a beautiful, I mean, if I just picture it in my mind, you know, on a nice summer's day, it's absolutely beautiful. It's well-maintained. It's got green cropped grass and very old stately trees, you know, straight up and down. That uh, that are very wide, you know, have very wide at the top, uh, with a lot of shade. Beautiful trees, and there are enough trees so that where are so there are areas of shade in the older parts of the cemetery. The newer area, the one where there are more recent burials, is down closer to the water, is more sunlit. A couple of the older tombstones are, like I said, they're very faded and discolored, and here and there. Some of them have fallen over, and because uh, presumably there are no more uh, descendants to care about these people, uh, these, uh, these graves, nothing is done about it. Uh, maybe sometimes uh, the community might get together and do that. I don't really know. I mean, some of the graves are, I've seen them, you know, I've been going up there for a long time, and um, <clears throat> some of them are, are, have been fixed, the grave sites where there was uh, overgrown 
you know, large tall grass or uh, weeds, and that was that's been fixed. So little by little, uh, people probably come down there to volunteer to do that. <clears throat> and in the cemetery, like in you know every other cemetery I've ever seen and been to, uh, on Memorial Day on July Fourth and on Veterans Day, people come and put small American flags attached to metal or wooden sticks in the ground next to, or actually in the graves. They you know they just poke them in there. I'm going to have a little more um, with your uh, with your indulgence, of course. I mean, I wouldn't do this on, without asking. And I have some more um, throw coat tea. Do you ever have throw coat tea? It's not bad. I know. Pause on the radio. When I was first on the radio, <clears throat> that's the thing they told us. That was the paramount thing. And I was on ter- what was called what's now called terrestrial radio. And this is on BAI, and that's 30, 38 years ago. <laughs> <clears throat> yes, that's how old I am. I'm not 38, but uh, I've been on the radio for 38 years. Uh, I was told, you know, the worst thing you can do, and in those days, it was, was to pause on the radio. Now, you could pause if it was, uh, there were people who were, who were on BAI who were the master of the pause. Steve Post was one of them, if you ever heard Steve Post. They would uh, know just how long to to put a lull in the sentence and uh, to make a point. It was uh, beautiful. It was like music if you could do it right, and not everybody could. But you were warned against too long a lull because if somebody from the FCC <clears throat> happened to check the tape of the show or was actually driving around and listening, and people were always you know at BAI, which was – you know, sort of radical leftists were always uh, paranoid about the government, and for good reason. If it was too long, then there was a legitimate reason for the FCC, we were told, to lift your license because you weren't using it. You know, somebody tuned into BAI and you hear, okay, who needs these left and leftist hippie radicals? So we, have, we were told that we always had to keep talking all the time. And people on the radio talk all the time anyhow. That's why they're on the radio. <laughs> You know, you don't uh, pause too long. But I've, I've, some people are, uh, you know, when they can do it, they're really good at it. So as far as this cemetery up in Maine, I guess I've been going there <clears throat> for about 30 years, going up to the town, I should say, where uh, my, um, my in-laws and my wife's family live around the cemetery and, um, and to, to visit them, right? And I always, whenever I go up there, and I, I don't know, last year might have been the first time I didn't do it for health reasons, I always walk over to this cemetery, usually in the middle of the week, um, to um, walk around in the cemetery or just sit on the ground or on a bench. And there's nobody there. You know, I've rarely ever been there when there was anybody else there. And you could just sit there. And I, and I listen, sit in the cemetery on the ground, right? <clears throat> or you uh, sit on one of the couple of benches, granite benches that are there scattered throughout the cemetery. And I uh, listen to the sound of the water on the one side and the wind in the trees. And I would, uh, I guess, what's, how it is this? I kind of I mingled my own thoughts and feelings with uh, feelings, my own thoughts and feelings about life and death with the particular aura of this place, which is a combination, a mixture, not a, not a violent mixture, but just a layering and intertwining. It was a kind of a mix of, I guess you'd call it sadness and peace and definitely a sense of eternity, a sense of eternity. I mean, did you ever spend time in a cemetery? 
<clears throat> those of you that are not the, uh, the walking dead, but I mean actually live people. Did you ever spend time in a cemetery? I mean, not just visiting somebody you knew, but uh, just to visit a cemetery? I mean, I suppose it's not a common occupation. And it's something that I could tell you a little bit more about later, if I have the time, <clears throat> that, I would be, that I would be attracted to for various complex reasons. And, but depending on the cemetery, it can be an amazingly settling, peaceful experience. And I remember reading somewhere that in some places, Buddhist monks used to meditate and sleep overnight on the actual graves of their parents uh, to get a real knowledge. The idea was to get a real knowledge of the impermanence of life. <clears throat> and this is something I can understand, but I could never imagine doing this myself. I mean, I visited my mother's grave. She's buried out on Long Island in a very large Jewish cemetery. Uh, but those, but just those those little visits during the day, in the middle of the summer, in the um, in the bright sun, right? Um, they shook me so bad that I haven't done this in about twenty years. Um, of course, they would never let anybody sleep overnight in a cemetery. There's all kinds of rules and laws, but we're talking about times and places when people were able to do that. Um, now, although. So my mother, you know, she's in this cemetery. It's out on Long Island. <clears throat> and although she does uh, psychologically continue to haunt me, sometimes in the worst way, um, uh, I really don't feel like going out there. But on the other hand, on the other hand, uh, maybe it wouldn't be a bad idea if you took it from – look at it from the other point of view. If I took the Long Island Railroad, got on there, and went out there and, uh, to visit the grave just to verify for myself that she's actually dead and gone. Maybe that would be a good idea. Maybe I should just go out there and uh, and, and visit the grave. Um, she's not, you know, she's dead and gone. She's not forgotten, of course. But to go out there and to visit a grave, I mean, you reduce people to their to their right size, right? Um, but um, um, you know, you, uh, I mean, you, somebody dies: your uh, father, your mother, your husband, or your wife, um, uh, and um, you miss them terribly and you think about them, but and then you feel guilty because as the years go on, sometimes you catch yourself forgetting them. Like when you suddenly remember them or you look at a picture or somebody in your family mentions uh, this person, then suddenly you realize that little by little by little over the years, you have stopped thinking about them. I would love to stop thinking about my mother, but that's not her. It's me. <laughs> but... Uh, I think in the natural course of things, and I refer to that as if somebody uh, – as something that's foreign to me because in the natural course of things is not something I usually do. But I know a little bit about it from watching other humans and maybe feeling a little bit myself that you do. Uh, people who are away, who are gone, who whose voice you don't hear every once in a while or actually see them alive, they will tend to fade from memory. And I think people um, – people um, – Visit grave sites for all sorts of reasons. Um, anyhow, uh, I mean, maybe that's one reason. Now, one reason maybe some people visit grave sites, uh, like, like I was just mentioning, is to remind themselves, if they need reminding, that by comparison with the person who's gone, they are alive and distinguishable from the dead person. And I didn't, I didn't go see my mother. I didn't go see her buried. I went to the funeral, and I stood for a little while in the back of the memorial chapel. Uh, I was the one who picked out the, uh, the um, coffin for her. I was the one who picked out the coffin. Uh, my <clears throat> sister was uh, not 
not uh, back in the city. She was traveling someplace. And I picked out the coffin. And um, I was and still have, unfortunately. But at the time, I was still so completely unresolved uh, with anything to do with my mother and filled with such uh, anger towards her, um, holding on to it only to my own detriment that uh, I remember going through this whole showroom and going from the thousands of dollars coffin to uh, looking at even pine, bo- literally pine boxes that they kept for indigent people, for welfare people. Finally, I picked out a decent coffin, <clears throat> not too expensive, not too cheap. Anyhow, but I didn't go see, I, I went to the funeral, but I didn't go to see her buried, um, actually laid in the ground. And uh, when everybody got in their cars from the funeral chapel to go out to the cemetery, I got in my car and I drove back to my apartment in Brooklyn. Uh, if I think about it, I guess I just couldn't bear to part with her, right? I mean, you know, like I just couldn't bear it. I don't know. You know, I've seen, you know, I, I, I've seen things like this before with people who they just couldn't, they couldn't handle this. But a year later... I went out to the gravesite to see the unveiling of the tombstone. And this is, I don't know how this is in other, in other cultures or other religions, but there's a Jewish custom <clears throat> that the tombstone doesn't get put up till a year after the burial. They bury people, and then a year later, uh, they put the tombstone up. And then uh, they have a, it's a ceremony. They put a veil over it. And um, when people come out there uh, with the rabbi, uh, the veil is lifted. Uh, the covering is lifted off the tombstone. Um, what is the reason for that? I'm sure that somebody knows the reason for that. If you knew the reason for that, feel free to tell me. I mean, can I, I could guess, you know, sort of uh, personally or psychologically, um, it's just a refreshment of a ritual. It's re-remembering the person. Like, you know, if you just put somebody in the ground and cover them with dirt, and um, <clears throat> um, that doesn't seem respectful or um, or devoted enough. So uh, in a year's time, uh, you put up the tombstone, and um, then um, uh, you go out. And so you're re-remembering. You're re-remembering um, the person and uh, going through yet another ritual, which uh, I think it helps because it's like in stages. And maybe what they should do, I don't know, after that, you're free to visit whenever you want or not. But to maybe uh, maybe what would it be, you know, like after three years, again, another, uh, something else is added to the stone or something, you know, something like that. But that's what happens. So in the Jewish religion, I don't know. Like I said, I don't know why. <clears throat> the first time that I ever, I have some more of this? Yeah, I will. <clears throat> Foul tasting stuff. And throat coat tea does not taste good. <clears throat> but I think it helps a little bit. The first time I remember, the first time I say I should say that I understood the value of being able to bury somebody in a local cemetery and being able to visit the grave was when my father died. And um, the reason I understood it so clearly was because of the absence of the whole ritual and experience. Um, this was because he died overseas in a plane crash in the ocean and his body was never found. So there were no remains. I, never, I don't like that word. Anyhow, there was no remains to ship home and to bury. <clears throat> and there was no gravesite to visit either. Nothing. I mean, um, so he just disappeared. And it makes it, see, that's, that's the value, on, you know, that's the value of the gravesite, I guess, and the tombstone. If somebody's actually buried, their remains are in there 
when you go out and visit and you saw them being put in the ground and then you see the tombstone and you go out and visit, um, then, uh, then you know they're there. What, you know, I mean, what's left of them? I, you know, this is philosophical and religious. But you know that that's the, where they were, that's where their body laid, and that's the person that you knew in there. But if somebody um, disappears, I mean, somebody just go like disappears, um, they haunt you even more. I mean, if you could go out and visit the body, um, then uh, there's a certain composed feeling there. I mean, horribly sad and grieving, whatever, over the years, or maybe gets mellower with time. But you can, you can be assured that there is a, what people call a resting place. Um, but no gravesite to visit. Um, they get the, the sense of absence, like extra, it's extra loss that comes to people. Uh, and this probably happens to people who lose loved ones in war sometimes, although not in modern times. And, you know, in the Civil War, they just didn't have the time and the money and the ability to ship home all the dead. So they just buried them more or less where they fell and put them in mass graves and um, put up uh, markers. Um, and uh, they left it for, um, for the people back home to set up, uh, you know, tombstones and markers in local cemeteries. Um, I think this ha- I mean, obviously it happened. Uh, I mean, you know, bodies decompose. It happened in World War. You're enjoying this. Are you listening to this with your uh, with your breakfast? <laughs> uh, in World War Two, uh, in you know foreign wars, um, in World War One, World War Two, there are um, tens of thousands of American um, soldiers. Um, their remains buried in cemeteries, and if you wanted to visit them, you would have to go over there. Um, it could be that my aunts, my uh, father's sisters, set up a tombstone somewhere out on Long Island, but I was never close to that side of the family, and I never knew if they did that. Uh, but even if they did, I probably wouldn't have gone to see it. Because it, he, he, what remains of my father, is not in there. It's a marker, um, and you could have that marker on your you know, bureau. You could put something up on your bureau, which I once did. Made up something I drew, I made up and put it on, you know, fastened it to cardboard and had a marker for him. But it's uh, hard because <clears throat> you have this feeling that they're wandering forever, right? <clears throat> I mean, I miss my father still, and I would like to be able to visit his grave. So I can understand the wish that so many people have to do that. I, I really do understand that. I mean, the way he died compounded the agony and the grief because there was no body to mourn over. And uh, no ritualized thing to do with the family, you know, and other people standing around. Um, we were all left on our own, really, to sort of wonder where he was. <clears throat> and I wonder uh, if, uh, do you mind if I have some more? No, you don't mind. Why don't you join me, right? Make, uh, stop the tape if you're listening on podcasts, which apparently 99% of you do. And go off and brew some uh, <coughs> tea for yourself. Uh, maybe in reverence and memory of people who have gone. I don't know. <clears throat> um, sorry for the morbidity. <laughs> but this is a state I generally live in. Can you imagine? Um, and I wonder, so, but do most people, I mean, do you, you're listening, right? Do most people, do you think, get solace from visiting the graves of their loved ones? Um, <clears throat> I really don't know. Only haven't seen or spoken to a few, a handful of people who have done this. Uh, I do know... Uh, a couple of people who make these visits to graves, and uh, they feel a sense of, uh, they come away with a sense of sad peace 
and a certain reconnection whenever they visit. I mean, there is a spiritual life. It's personal and it's universal. Um, <clears throat> you know, like that feeling I get from visiting the cemetery in Maine, uh, a spiritual life. And when you visit a grave, it arouses this spiritual feeling in your heart. I think people also visit uh, grave sites because they feel like the spirit of the person who died is permanently sort of hovering there. Or if not actually there, then the grave is a kind of communication post for a very long distance calls, you might say, to wherever that soul has gone. So you could go there and say, let me get in touch. And this is the place you would go, right? <clears throat> there are some people who go to visit the dead because they feel it gives the dead person comfort, that somehow they would be lonely without your visit, that they know you haven't forgotten them. And this is all, you know, what I'm, all this stuff I'm talking about is based on um, a feeling or a belief or both that there's something of the person uh, that remains after death and that may actually be connected with, if it's only, but perhaps only in your memory or in your own mind, but there's some connection, probably it is in your own mind, in your own heart, when you go to visit where they're buried. Um, <clears throat> so you go to visit and you give them comfort and they know that you haven't forgotten them. I mean, to the extent that you identify a person with their body, then you have a natural urge to preserve it and protect it. As hopeless, of course, as that is. I mean, you can't preserve and protect it. But so, but people have their body, uh, their loved ones, their bodies are embalmed. They're dressed in good or favorite clothes. Uh, they even have makeup on so that they don't, you know, you don't see all that withering and death. And, of course, I think this is becoming more common as time goes on. People are being cremated. Uh, I always feel kind of jarred by this procedure. It almost feels like an assault, like a murder after death. But when you think about it, I mean, why not? Truly, it is then ashes to ashes and dust to dust. I mean, take the ashes, you throw them into the sea, into the air, or sprinkle them on the ground, and back where they started, body-wise. The, the first time, actually, I ever saw an urn with somebody's ashes in it was when I was a teenager, uh, that's the first time I've ever even heard of it. I went with my, uh, I have to call him a wise guy, cousin, Ira, who was in his early 20s, to visit my uncle's sister, my aunt-in-law in Brooklyn. At one point, she went out of the living room to get some stuff from the kitchen. Oh, let me ask you, do, is there any air conditioning in the place? Oh, it comes on and off? Yeah, it's hot in here. Yeah. All right. Um, maybe I'll open the door. Can you open the door? Yeah. Uh, so at one point, we go to visit my uncle's sister. And this is in Brooklyn. I guess my aunt-in-law. And at one point, she went out of the living room to get some stuff from the kitchen. And my cousin started snooping around the room, right? And he sees his urn on the mantelpiece. Uh, mantelpiece. And um, I was about 15 at the time. Uh, and he takes off the top, and he taps some fresh air from fresh uh, ash from, <laughs> from his cigar into it. And I have to say, this sort of shocked me. It really did. I mean, it seemed very disrespectful and just plain wrong. I mean, when my uncle's sister came back with the coffee and the cake, Ira, my cousin, asked her who was in the urn, and she told us it was her father. And uh, I just couldn't get over how, like, this seemed so wrong to me. And on the drive back to Queens, I asked him, I asked my cousin, how could he do such a thing? And he says, oh, loosen up, kid. <laughs> He tells me to loosen up. He says, nobody, especially the old guy in the urn, is ever going to know the difference. Probably not. I mean, maybe definitely not. I mean, ashes to ashes for sure. In this case, it was a mix of old Jewish ashes, ashes you know, from a, 
uh, body that started out somewhere in Eastern Europe. Uh, interesting, right? Mixed with contemporary Virginia tobacco ash. And uh, maybe on a plantation, came from a plantation, the same plantation that was once worked by slaves one time. So the two, uh, the two peoples join in an urn. My uncle's sister never knew it, so it never interfered with her reverence for the remains in the urn. So, I mean, what difference did it make? And what is the difference, really? Well, I mean, what makes everybody special is not their body or their ashes or their remains, though remarkably, with 7 billion people on the planet, everybody's face and, and body somehow is different. I don't, you know, then you have to look to God for that or something or just genetics. Uh, even bodies that age and become lined and spotted, they're always distinguishable. They're different from every other body on the planet. It's amazing to think about. Uh, but what makes each person, I think, unique and special is their personality. And more than that, which is on the same continuum, what people call the soul. It inhabits the body from birth and is released with the last breath. And I've seen this, the final expiration. Have you ever been with somebody when they died? Uh, when they took in and let, and let go of their last breath? I mean, it becomes so clear then that the body has been abandoned, cast aside like uh, old clothes by the essential spark that animated that particular life in the first place. It has somewhere else to go, and it leaves the body behind. I saw this with my mother. Uh, and when it goes, and you're there and you see it, um, or right afterwards, that's when you have that final empty feeling that the person you knew or loved is gone forever. The soul has no body. It has no face. I mean, you can't, you can't take a picture of it. Nothing. So all this, though fundamental and universal, this whole idea of the soul, is really still abstract until someone dies. Then you know it. But still, you know, we're just regular old humans with human memories. And when we think of someone who died, uh, we picture their face, right? And we have pictures, uh, you know, in our, in our, whatever, in our phones these days or on our, uh, you know, on our uh, computer screen. Uh, and if you're old-fashioned or old, like I am, you have pictures of people. Uh, you have albums of people, the person that died, and you see them, and you remember them all over again. I mean, it's too abstract and too, too um, generally sort of out of bounds to kind of hold on. You can't hold on to somebody's soul. There's no, it has no form. So you see them, maybe picture them sitting in there, or you picture in your mind, right? You see them sitting in a favorite chair or engaged in a favorite activity. They're smiling or frowning. They're just being there. That's how you remember people. Uh, <clears throat> for me, this experience of visiting graves was always uh, fraught with all kinds of complications. And uh, a large part of that was because I spent most of my early life until the age of 21 living next to a cemetery. I think I'll open the studio door, but I think I'll close it. A little too much noise. Hold on. I'm in a kind of a glass booth. Actually, it's a glass. It's a it's a, a room, a studio, uh, which has a big piece of glass where I can see the engineer, and there's a door that closes for privacy and to keep the sound out. <clears throat> but um, I guess there's no more air conditioning out there than there is in here. Um, but uh, for you know, I spent most of my early life till the age of 21 living right next to a cemetery, as most of you know who have listened to me before. And from the second-story window in the back of my house, I looked out on the cemetery, and it was a good-sized one. I mean, really long rows of gray and black marble and granite tombstones and um, brown, you know, the usual brown rectangular mounds of dirt in, in front of them. And I saw a lot of burials when I was young. 
<clears throat> I heard them, too. And when I went out in my backyard to play or on the weekends when the, my aunt, uncle, and my mother and my sister were lying on lawn chairs or playing or sunning themselves or we had a barbecue when my uncle was gardening, we'd, uh, we'd hear moans and wails and cries and prayers, of course, of people who were visiting graves near the fence that divided the cemetery from our backyard. This is our, our the, the soundtrack of our lives back there. And... Um, Sometimes if a burial was close enough to the fence that separated our yard from the cemetery um, and it was a new burial, we could actually hear the rabbi speaking and hear the words. And you could hear these sometimes ear-splitting wails and cries, these heart-rending cries while you're trying to eat your burger or, <laughs> or your hot dog or you're playing badminton or whatever it was, coming from, uh, you know, 10 yards, 20 yards away. And in the middle of the night, when I couldn't sleep, which was often, I would get up and there it was, a dark, forbidding, and even worse if there was moonlight. Uh, the city of the dead is what I was looking at, right? I don't recommend this view for children, by the way. Uh, that I had it is uh, another story. But during the day, and especially when it was um, spring or summer and the sun was warm and shining, the cemetery could look uh, and actually be very peaceful. It was especially so for me because my house was so full of craziness itself that I would sometimes just pull up a chair to my window and uh, look out the window. And sometimes I would actually go in the cemetery to get away from the nuttiness of my house. I'd go in, pick out a tree, lie down, have the breeze in my face, the sun shining. It was peaceful. It was one of the only places I knew it was peaceful. Uh, and when I was a kid, I had a couple of pets that died. Two of them I buried myself in the, in the backyard. One of them was a parakeet named Mo, who bizarrely drowned while trying to drink water from a deep glass. And I uh, dug a grave and buried him. Maybe it was her near the cemetery fence. <clears throat> and uh, the other one was a horned toad. <laughs> I had a horned toad I mean, as a pet. Horned toads are strange creatures, or maybe not strange. They're just horned toads, I guess. But uh, what distinguished this reptile was it was very small, about the size of a very large mouse, was that it never moved this thing. You could, and I did, stare at it for hours, and it just stayed in one place. I fed it. I forgot what. I think dead flies. I didn't know why I had a horned toad. I don't really know why, but I had one. And uh, the horned toad had a fascinating look to it, uh, at least for a little while each time, because it looked like a little baby dinosaur. It had that same quality that lizards and reptiles all have, like snakes, crocodiles. It's, like a, it's a rapacious, carnivorous, completely without regard for anything right? <clears throat> the lizard brain right there. I'm looking at it. But it was, it was really motionless, and there was no way, uh, no way I could actually tell it was alive sometimes, uh, except that when it ate a fly. And one day, I realized that the horn toad hadn't moved for days, and uh, then I just assumed, uh, then he, I just assumed it was a he, but maybe it was a she, I don't know. Uh, I assumed it was dead, and uh, um, could be because it started to smell. That's why. So when that happened, I performed some simple 1950s kid medical tests. I poked him several times and turned him over on his back and discovered he was dead. And I buried him in the backyard. Horny, I called him. <laughs> uh, I buried him in the backyard and I covered him up with dirt. And perversely, living next to this giant Jewish cemetery, I put up uh, two sticks tied together to form a cross. Why I did that, I have no idea. I, did I think that the horned toad was a Christian in some way, or maybe I was just being uh, different or perverse. Anyhow, um, 
there are some people that uh, <clears throat> that will never go near a cemetery. I know. I mean, I had a friend who was terrified of cemeteries. He wouldn't even. He came out with me once to visit my mother and wouldn't go past the cemetery gates. But who could blame him? I mean, it's a place you know since the very beginning of time. Ghosts, demons, you know, legends about the dead rising. I mean, people tend to avoid these places. But um, anyhow, back to this article. Uh, <clears throat> I Overcrowding. I don't know what's going to happen. I really don't know what's going to happen. Uh, they're going to have to find some way. I remember I did an article once um, about cemeteries and um, uh, for a magazine I worked for, and I interviewed uh, the owner of a funeral parlor. He took me down to see somebody being embalmed, uh, and other things, showed me different coffins and what they cost, taught me about his profit and loss. And he told me at the time, I remember this, this is back in the uh, late 80s, that they were burying people then. He was, and other people were, burying people um, in layers. They were burying people two and three, one on top of another. And a lot of people don't know this. And somehow it just seems awful, but uh, I, don't, I don't know. But, um, and in the end, reading all this stuff and thinking about it, I'm thinking about how would I want to be buried I could say I don't care, but obviously it means more. How you're buried, what happens to your ashes or your remains, what difference does it make to you? You're not there, right? It means all the difference in the world to the people who are left behind. So you sort of decide what you want to do and leave it up to them. Um, I don't know if I want a coffin to be lowered in the ground. I hate the idea of tight places. Of course, I wouldn't know, but I hate them anyhow. Um, Anyhow, but like the guy in the urn, the old man in the urn, I'll never know the difference. So it's true, and I, I will leave this up to whoever is standing, left standing when I go. Well, anyhow, this thing about Arlington set me off. I guess it was too morbid. Was it too morbid? I don't know. <clears throat> anyway, you know the old saying, right? You can take the boy out of the cemetery, but you can't take the cemetery out of the boy. Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. I come to bury Caesar, not to praise him. The evil that men do lives after them. The good is oft interred with their bones. So let it be with Caesar. The noble Brutus hath told you Caesar was ambitious. If it were so, it was a grievous fault, and grievously hath Caesar answered it. Here, under leave of Brutus and the rest, for Brutus is an honourable man, so are they all, all honourable men, come I to speak in Caesar's funeral. He was my friend, faithful and just to me. But Brutus says he was ambitious, and Brutus is an honourable man. He hath brought many captives home to Rome, whose ransoms did the general coffers fill. Did this in Caesar seem ambitious? When that the poor have cried, Caesar hath wept. Ambition should be made of sterner stuff. Yet Brutus says he was ambitious, and Brutus is an honourable man. You all did see that on the Lupercal I thrice presented him a kingly crown, which he did thrice refuse. Was this ambition? Yet Brutus says he was ambitious, and sure, he is an honourable man. I speak not to disprove what Brutus spoke, but here I am to speak what I do know. You all did love him once, not without cause. What cause withholds you then to mourn for him? 
O judgment, thou art fled to brutish beasts, and men have lost their reason. Bear with me. My heart is in the coffin there with Caesar. And I must pause till it come back to me. I won't be happy till I make you happy too. Life's really worth living when we are mirth giving. Why can't I give some to you? When skies are gray and you say you are blue, I'll send the sun smiling through. I want to be happy, but I won't be happy till I make you happy too.
Bye. <laughs> 